don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. Hello, everyone. That was, of course, the unmistakable voice of America's favorite conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones. I can never resist his gay frogs rant. Alex takes what may be a perfectly sensible point about environmental pollutants and makes it sound crazy by insinuating there's a secret plot to turn the frogs gay. At least that's what you could hear if you wanted to. On a more serious note, Alex has recently been on trial for encouraging Sandy Hook conspiracy theories, which led to the harassment of family members of the deceased children. Not very nice. In this discussion with Adam Fitzgerald, we talk about the trial and its potential fallout, and also the nature of conspiracy theory, and whether society needs an Alex Jones figure ranting from the sidelines, or whether we'd really all be better off without his sort altogether. Adam has a less appreciative attitude towards Alex, so I start off with the question, why do you hate Alex Jones so much? Oh my goodness, Richard. I'm not one for emotional diatribe, but when I hear Alex Jones, I can't help but blow a gasket. And it's almost a natural reaction. And it goes back many, many, many years. I've had such a loathing for Alex Jones. And I do get the question from people, why do you hate Alex Jones so much? Because I consider him the most damaging individual when it comes to uh, certain events. And with being 9-11 as my main uh, area of study, the essence of most of the fringe conspiracies, when I say fringe, I'm talking about irrational theories, either emanated with him or were purported by him giving that theory a popular demand in, in hearing it. So I was uh, living in New York in the late 90s, and I remember Alex Jones even back then, and I didn't really pay him much like serious attention. I did know the name, and basically he wasn't somebody who like pushed the really like fringe theories. Yeah, he talked about like a global takeover of government, but he never really went into like the Satanist spiel or the like really outrageous stuff. It wasn't until I'd say, I want to say right, right during Sandy Hook. Okay, so Sandy Hook, 2012 is when he really became a thorn for me because with 9-11, he was pushing loose change, the second edition. And even though he was pushing that, I said, ah, you know, there are more outrageous individuals during that time. So I was more disparaging toward them. But then when Sandy Hook happened, it was like the floodgates flew right open. And I remember... Uh, my co-researcher, Nelson Martins, DJ Thermodetonator, said right about that time is when he changed his position on Alex Jones, too. And really, I think Sandy Hook pushed him over the, like, the edge mentally, because according to the court, uh, the civil suit that just happened, he basically is saying that he was getting fed bad information from an individual named Wolfgang Halbig. Mm. Now, um, Wolfgang Halbig, of course, is a, he calls himself a journalist. He's not. He basically goes to like these victims' families in, in um, Colorado, isn't it? Colorado, I'm sorry. Yes. And he would go to their houses and he basically would like have a camera with them, camera crew, and, and yell at these people. And then Alex Jones would invite him because he was, he was very popular at the time. He would invite him on the show. And how big, according to Alex Jones, was a very demanding individual. He would call three times a, a day to the show, tell him, that, hey, listen, I got you, you know. And he would, but Alex Jones would acquiesce and just basically have him on the show. And right about at this time, also, he started re revamping on these 9 11 theories. So it was a two pincher attack. And I was just, I, I really just fed up with him at this point on top of the Alex Jones now having how big and as well as Jim Fetzer, because he wrote a book called Sandy hooks was a hoax or something like that, where he, you know, he doesn't even think children died. How big makes that statement too. But he also says 
that the children sang at the Super Bowl. I think it was Super Bowl 51 when the Patriots played the Falcons Super Bowl. And I'm like, you know, really, just use your head. If, if the kids were singing the Super Bowl, what the parents wouldn't know about it. Like, is are the people really that, that gullible to fall for it? Well, yes, a lot of people did. And they went right to the airwaves. And when they did that, the 9-11 truth movement started gravitating toward that. And I know certain individuals that did that. One of them was a board member of 9-11 Truth Action Project. His name was Dan Hennon. And I remember having a conversation with him on Twitter. And he fell for the Alex Jones, Wolfgang Halbig theory that the kids sang at the Super Bowl. And I'm like, wow, this is a board member for a 9-11 truth movement. And he's espousing this? Well, when you look at fringe conspiracy theorists in general, you'll notice that they gravitate to the bigger, more globally known events, moon landing, 9-11, you know, mass shootings in general, wars, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. Everything is a globalist agenda. And it's such a vague term, Richard, when they use it. It's like New World Order, Illuminati, globalist. It really doesn't tell you anything. It just means that it's a nebulous form, almost like this mythical figure that the government could do whatever it wants, however it wants, wherever it wants, whenever it wants. And it just makes you think that, you know, this, this mythical like ghost figure is so enormous that we need to fight against it. And the people doing the fighting are Alex Jones and Jim Fetzer and Wolfgang Albig and people like that. And what they do is they'll promise you that they're going to make changes to these globals, whatever you want to talk, you know, whatever you want to label them. But yet it seems like a true crime story on TV where at the end they go, tune in next week. And we'll bring you to the next story. And it's like a step-by-step process. Meanwhile, you're not going anywhere. Nothing is ever progressed. Nothing ever happens. And that's because the theories that they proposition regarding Sandy Hook and 9-11 go nowhere. And finally, it came back to bite Alex Jones in the rear because the Sandy Hook families put out a lawsuit. Now, they didn't act like 9-11 families. They acted as a group. Sandy Hook was smarter. They, each one has a civil suit independently of another. So I forgot the name of the parent who did okay, this. Okay, Adam, Adam, hang on. We'll come back oh, yeah. to the, the lawsuit okay. in a minute, okay? Because sure. we'll have a bit more sort of progression to get there. So yeah. when I got back into looking at conspiracy literature at about 2009 time, okay. Alex Jones is kind of unavoidable, right? Like to get into that area, you have to go through Jonestown, you have to go through Infra Wars. And for me, that was a, I would say, relatively positive experience. So I saw his documentary Terror Storm, and there's a, a two minutes at the start of Terror Storm, which I think is excellent, right? Where he goes through these CIA operations that have gone on post the Second World War, like mm. Operation Ijax in Iran. I think he mentions um, PB Success in Guatemala. He certainly mentions Gladio. And I'd never heard of any of this. I just thought it was amazing, right? So I went off and Wikipedia this, and I, that got me reading the author Stephen Kinzer, who was one of the oh, yes. writing right. about this kind of thing. Yes, yes. So that was brilliant. So, and then I would find Alex would have people on. Like Alex introduced me to a lot of people. So uh, Peter Dale Scott, he was featured in Alex, one of Alex's documentaries, one of the Infowars documentaries. I think it was the New World Order documentary. Mm. And he also interviewed interesting people, like doing the series of you on 9-11. Uh, Alex, one of the people that interviewed Imad Salem, the FBI yes. mole in the in the 93 bombings. Not many people did that. Alex interviewed people who infiltrated the IRA, like uh, Kevin Fenton. Kevin Folson, sorry. I don't know of any other interviews out there with him. So a lot of interesting stuff he produced. And then what I found was there was a gravitation away from him, because now I'm reading Kinzer and Scott and probably listening to James Corbett's stuff. And, you know, I might check in for wars every day, then it's every other day. And then without realizing it, I haven't looked at it in like a year, right? And then I remember being in a forum where people discussed like, hey, what's your experience with, with what do you think of Alex Jones? And I was amazed at how similar the post people put were to my experience, which was, yeah, I got a lot of information from that guy, but then he'd have these articles on, which just seemed outrageous. And I clicked them. And then the article, when you click through, 
what wasn't anything like what Alex Jones was suggesting. So like Homeland Security was ordering guillotines or something, or like he he had stuff on about how Bill Gates was going to kill all these Africans with vaccinations to bring the population down. Well, whether that's Bill Gates's intent or not, I don't think he's going to go and openly announce it at a conference. And it wasn't like that at all. It was a really pedestrian point of like, if there's low childhood mortality, people don't breed as much and therefore you can control the population levels. So it seemed to be that there was a clickbaitiness to InfoWars, like a business model clickbaitiness of putting extreme articles up that maybe people wouldn't click through and read. I don't know. Or maybe he's relying on the business of people that don't click through and read them. That's my, my sort of cynical interpretation. Or maybe Alex just so locked into a kind of extreme conspiracy paradigm that he's actually taking that interpretation of what people are saying too. So I noticed a, a gravitation away from him. And I never really thought about like him being a damaging figure, I suppose, until we spoke more. And then the idea that his 9-11 information is grossly inaccurate and he's putting all these extreme conspiracies uh, alongside and tarnishing geopolitical research, tarnishing what could be potential legal challenges to the state with mm. crazy town stuff. And the whole um, crisis actor narrative I think you're right that I don't recall that being a thing in the noughties. I'm sure it got said somewhere on some internet forum or whatever, but I don't remember with 9-11 or with the 7-7 bombings, anyone talking about crisis actors. I first remember that emerging at the Boston bombing and Sandy Hook, where all mm. of a sudden, all these people were analyzing the videos. And you see that guy there? That can't be a real injury to his leg because you would die from that injury. And that guy's an Iraq war veteran who's a, he's a soldier who lost his leg in Iraq. And then he was he was uh, hired to play a, a victim of a bombing. The obvious logical flaw was apparent, right? I mean, what do you do with these people after that? Unless you're growing them in a vat on the ground and then producing them for this production and putting them away again. It's just completely unsustainable. A lot of it, Adam, I think, goes back to Northwoods. And if you remember, we spoke about Operation Northwoods, the yes. um, plan to in the 1960s to initiate a war with Cuba through various acts of subterfuge and deception and false flag terror. And one of the things was to shoot down a plane full of passengers, American passengers, except it wouldn't be a plane full of American passengers. It would be an empty plane and it would all be fabricated and the people would just be made up. And that obviously puts the idea into conspiracy culture that there are these crisis actor events, there are these big terror events where no one actually dies. And my speculation about Northwoods is that would never have happened, that that was just for the report. And if it had actually gone ahead, they would have just shot down a plane full of people mm. or they wouldn't have done it or one or the other. But you wouldn't make up 70 people to kill because any reporter who looks into the, you know, 20 years later thinks, yeah, we should really do a documentary following up on the lives of those families. And then they're going to find they don't exist. And nobody at the CIA remembers that's a big secret anymore. You know, mm, you're opening yourself right. up to the discovery of this. The CIA did sponsor Cuban terrorists who shot down airliners a few years later. So it's not like there's some moral prohibition about that. So I thought that the Northwoods documents, people had taken them like too literally and hadn't actually been cynical enough about Lyman Lemeter and um, about the Joint Chiefs of Staff on that and what they were capable of. Yeah, it, it had put this notion in that these crisis actors ex exist and this, this falsification of terror exists. I, I do think it exists in foreign parts, like in Syria or something. You can falsify stuff and get it on the news in America, but you can't do it where the US media will have easy and consistent access to it for generations to come. I think what Alex Jones did is in the same effect as what Loose Change did. Loose Change made the most popular 9-11 film in the world, even currently, it still is. And what they did was it brought attention to the subject. But the con is that the details in the film were dubious and even outright false. So in other words, yes, you were made aware that there was an inside job. However, the details of the inside job are leading you to a dead end. So even if it led you to bring attention to the subject, you basically are either propagating the theories made in that film, leading other people to be misinformed. Therefore, even if you brought attention to the event, you're still propagating disinformation. It's a plus and a minus, but I think it's a minus overall. Where people can say that, oh, Alex Jones is bringing truth to light in regards to certain subjects, I'll give him that. For example, he was talking about Jeffrey Epstein long before anybody else was. He was talking about the 1993 Wall Street Center bomb, like you said, you brought up with Ibn Salem, 9-11 and mass shootings, right? 
that there is an inside job, if you speak, that we weren't told the truth. All right. So, yeah, okay. I agree with this guy so far. Yeah, we haven't been told the truth. However, when he talks about specifics, you get in trouble because I've noticed that there's a troubling trend with people who tend to believe in the more extreme beliefs about certain subjects. And when it comes to 9-11, it basically delves into living hijackers, for example, or CGI planes, right? And what this does is create a branch out effect. And because Alex Jones is so popular and because he says little nuggets of truth here and there, because that may keep that's going to keep him afloat. If he just comes right out and gives you false information, for example, people are going to catch on, even the most ignorant. So he has to say something truthful, but majority of what he says is false or misleading. Okay, Adam. So my question is, and this is the question I've struggled with and tried to just pass out in sure. my contemplating conspiracy book, is, is he a net gain or a net loss? And is conspiracy, and this kind of extreme conspiracy, you could throw like David Icke into that hat, net gain, net loss. And I don't think that's an answerable question. Okay, I know a lot of people have an answer to it, and a lot of people feel he's absolutely a net loss. And if it wasn't for Alex Jones, all the people who became curious about 9-11 would have gravitated to James Corbett's work, right. Ryan Dawson's yeah. work, someone else's, your work, someone else's, and we would have been in a much better position. But my thing is, well, one, you don't know that. Okay, because that's not what happened. And I don't think it's just Google algorithms were promoting Alex Jones. I think mm. there's something about the performance artist that is Alex Jones, the performance artist that is David Icke, that draws people in. And my comparison was, well, you know, in like spirituality or religion, do you have this concept of an initiatory myth, right? So you're told a funny story, mm. which mm. isn't true, although you might believe it to be true, because it makes everything kind of big. It makes everything loud and appealing and then as you go on the story falls away and reveals its inner essence and then if you're in a, a kind of fundamentalist place you might be very attached to the story being a certain way and you might be prepared to commit violence because you're so wanting the story to be true but the more you inwardly mature the less you need that to the point where it doesn't really matter whether jesus or muhammad or border really lived or not right it, because it's the principle that matters so the initiatory myth can kind of be held more loosely or fall away and that's what I speculate, I contend, that Alex Jones, David Icke did. They create these grand initiatory myths. And Alex has got more grand as it went on. Initially, he was exposing the New World Order, and then it got more into Satanists and otherworldly beings. And he was initially critical for David Icke for taking it there, and he kind of went there himself. Uh, but it's a grand mythos, right? And I don't see, well, you're not doing that, right? There's no mythos which you fit your research in to. So that's the question. What do we need to provide? If you're going to say, okay, there's definitely a net loss with these people, what do you need to put in place to make it that they can go away, right? That this kind of conspiracism and all the bad it brings can be taken out of the equation and you still have that first step for people, right? Because um, like what I wanted to learn about the JFK assassination and I'd seen Peter Dale Scott on an Alex Jones interview. So I thought, okay, yeah, that guy's really smart. Like I'll get his book, right? And I opened it up and I went, oh, right. Lee Harvey Oswald was shot by a guy called Jack Ruby. I didn't know that. Who's this guy? And mm -hmm. then I realized this book is too much for me. Like, this is not my level. I am going to have to go down many, many levels and I'll yeah. get back here in a few years' time. And that's true. Like, for a long time, the only book of Peter Dale Scott's I could manage was his 9 11 book. And even took me a good bit of time to get there because he is such a detailed, erudite writer. Okay. That that's not a starting book. So, people like Peter Dale Scott, people on that level, they're not going to replace Alex Jones. You need a story, okay? And also, if you think that, and I, I guess it's the aim of your work, is to bring knowledge about 9-11 and wider geopolitical realities to a wider audience, okay? Well, in that wider audience, 50% of the population have a below average IQ, right? That's just a fact, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so when do you want them to engage, right? Because if people the further you go down that spectrum engage, they're not going to be engaging with Peter Dale Scott. They're maybe not going to be learning the intricacies of what went on at Alex Station. Mm. They're going to be on a level which requires, what can I say, more flashing lights in terms of the knowledge they pick up on. And it might be that they are intuitively correct that 
COVID is a scam or 9-11 was an inside job or the government's out to get you or something, they might have a broad intuitive correctness about that, but then fill it in with details that maybe we wouldn't agree with. Okay. And again, I just think that's a problem because you want people to be involved, but you're asking people to be involved maybe who will find it difficult to make these distinctions. So what do we do about that, Adam? I, I will I will say that well, they, well I'll tell you what though that's the whole basis of your book contemplating conspiracy yeah okay which which really resonated with me because I I too came out from when it when it was 9/11 I really believed that a plane didn't hit the Pentagon and the first film I saw was in plain sight by Dave von Cleese and the second film I saw was loose change I will have to say that you are absolutely right. I can't tell you if Alex Jones or David Icke is a net gain or a net loss because without them, would I have ever entertained 9-11 in the first place? For example, I'll give you my example how I started. 2006, I just reevaluated my position on theism and atheism or anti-theism. And for some reason, I, I started looking into the events of September 11, 2001. I don't know what led me there, but I, I do remember looking into like the geopolitical aspects of like the hijackers, the motivations. And the first thing that I came across was In Plain Sight, this film that uh, Dave Von Cleese co-produced. And I remember coming away with it fascinating. And I didn't say right away, oh, this looks full or nothing like that, because I, I came at 9-11 with, with basically no information on it. the most general i know planes were hijacked and they crashed into you know the world trade center pentagon that was it i didn't know names of hijackers nothing so i really was like almost brand new so when i looked at this film it did invigorate in me something like wow i didn't know this is this really true and i right off the bat i wanted to challenge the beliefs because when we talked about my my history into anti-theism and theism, the one thing I took away from it was I would never fall into like one position and stay there. I would always challenge whatever I learned. So when I watched In Plain Sight, it was like maybe a week or two, I saw loose change because Davon Cleese actually was friends with um, Corey Rowe, one of the co-producers, and um, Dylan Avery of Loose Change. Uh, and they promoted their work all, all around the country. They, it was such a popular film. Loose Change was, it still is too. But um, at that time, 2006, seven, oh, it was like, forget it. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, In Plain Sight, Loose Change came out a little bit later. At that time, I never heard of like a no plane crashing in the Pentagon before. And to me, when I saw a plane crash, like you see plane debris. But the Pentagon, there was very little. I said, wait a minute, this guy has a point. And because of Davon Cleese, and because of Loose Change, and because of other fringe conspiracy theorists, I delve deeper into 9-11. And what, what separates me from a lot of other people is because I challenged these points right away. And because I did, I started studying other areas of 9-11. And that led me to where I am today. So I would have to say you're right, Richard. Because of the fringe conspiracy theorists led me into the interest of 9-11 in the first place. Now, it, let's just say Dave Von Cleese didn't exist or Loose Change never was a film. Would I have had interest in 9-11? I probably would say no. Well, here's the hurdle you'd have to jump over, okay? Because let's contrast, let's contrast the claims about the Pentagon. Because do you find it interesting? Does it ever strike you as odd that if you were to go on some 9-11 Facebook forum, you would find a lot of people who had suspicions about 9-11, or let's say were convinced 9-11 was an inside job, okay? But they might think that for completely different reasons. So you ask some people, was 9-11 an inside job? They say, oh yeah, definitely. Well, what, why do you think that? Well, it's obvious no plane crashed at the Pentagon. It's really obvious no plane crashed at Shanksville. You can't prove the hijackers got on the plane. I don't think they exist. Uh, the telephone calls, they were all faked, and on and on and on, right? And you ask somebody else, they'll say, well, yeah, but not for any of those reasons, because the CIA were clearly shepherding the hijackers around. They didn't mm. open Masawi's laptop. So you have like these two groups of people who believe 9-11 was an inside job for two different sets of mutually exclusive reasons. 
or somewhat mutually exclusive, right? Or or the, the latter group might think the former's whole thing about the telephone stuff is nonsense. And that, that always struck me as odd. Like, it's a pretty controversial thing to think. And the idea there will be two entirely separate sets of reasons you could base that on. And it's almost like, it's almost as if people intuit something about that day. It's just some damn thing that doesn't feel right about this, you know? I don't know, this feels off. And then they go and grab reasons. And those reasons might be, like, really good and solid, or they might be fruitcake. But it's not the starting point. The starting point is you feel something is wrong. That, that's just something that grabs me. So with the Pentagon, if we ask the question then, would you have gotten into 9-11? Well, what would you have had to do? You would have had to have seen a documentary on Alex Station, for a start, because you can say there's, there is a real conspiracy at the Pentagon, okay? And it's the CIA were protecting the, the hijackers, Nafal Hazmi and Fidel Medina, from mm. arrest by the FBI and got them on the plane. Now, whether there's some sort of uh, remote control on the plane or not, I don't. let's not go there, but that that's like absolutely solid to the point where we speculate hey do you know i wonder if like i wonder if the cia was involved in spreading this no plane at the pentagon thing to to cover up for that to send conspiracy down the wrong line mm. but if they do do stuff like that i wonder if they even know what the result is because it could be they brought a lot of people in who then transitioned to looking at alex station right so you would have had to have go from like knowing nothing about 9-11 to understanding the intricacies of alex station straight off without this far more visual story like the idea that no plane at the pentagon that's a lot easier to understand than the kuala lumpur summit you know and who these guys are and what their backgrounds are and what the cia procedure is on transferring information to the fbi and who richard clark is and so on and so on and so on you know so that's the hurdle that we would have to jump over if we want to say limit fringe conspiracy what do you put in its place as a simple compelling story that also happens to be true and not a fantasy is the allure of fringe and that's one thing about fringe conspiracies it's much more alluring i i liken it to children sitting around a scoutmaster at night on a beach and he's telling you a scary story and you're enthralled by it as opposed to a bunch of children watching mcneil Urhau on channel 13 about the day's news for example the allure of alex station or the allure of espionage in the country, pre-intelligence involving domestic and foreign intelligence services. It is a very expansive uh, subject. It's also very meticulous. So right away, there's an off-put. People want a shorter version, uh, much more condensed, but they also want it to be very colorful. So what people like Alex Jones does is give you exactly that in terms of, like, like I said before, vague terminology, globalists, New World Order, instead of specific names like Richard Blee, Tom Wilshire, for example. This was a topic of dissension between uh, people in the True Datchet Project about two years ago. And I was told by some people in that group how I can basically condense 9-11 in like 10 minutes. And I told them it would be absolutely impossible. What this poses now is a concern for reputable researchers to basically try and simplify 9-11, which is an impossibility. So in other words, people are looking for a quick out. They don't want to watch or hear a 18-part series. They'd rather see a five-minute, 10-minute video. Uh, they have no time for an hour or even 30 minutes. So if you can't compartmentalize or structure 9-11 in a very simplified way, you are already starting off on the wrong foot. And so I think this is the reason why most of the fringe conspiracies that exist with 9-11 have caught on so quick because most of them are very simple to understand. No plane at the Pentagon, no crash, uh, no plane crash at Shanksville, um, CGI plane. Uh, directed energy weapons, melting the towers. And these are all fascinating subjects if you're delving into the very alluring aspects of conspiracy. But if you want to simplify conspiracy, well, they do that too. So it's a double-edged sword for them. And that's why they got off on such a quick foot, for example, as opposed to like Paul Thompson, 
who is yeah. very meticulous. Well, they're always going to be first, aren't they? Because how long does it take for Paul Thompson to put the Terra timeline together as compared to saying there's no plane at the Pentagon? You know, you can you can make a video on no plane hitting the Pentagon on September 12th, 2001. Sure. You know, Paul Thompson's work takes months into years. So they're always going to be first. And it's always going to have that appeal. Because frankly, Adam, if I come into this movement not knowing anything about it, mm. and somebody tells me that there's some kind of connection between the CIA and the hijackers that goes on over months and years, and it's a whole paper trail you can follow, and somebody else tell, tells me that they can prove no plane at the Pentagon, I'm probably going to listen to that guy, right? Because I think, well, okay, if that's true, then you're going to prove that straight away because you're going to look at the investigation. There's going to be no plane parts down mm. there. And that's going to be a slam dunk, right? So it's it's much more appealing. I'll be finished this 9-11 stuff by lunchtime. So I get the appeal. And the other thing with it is there's a comprehensive narrative. This is particularly true of David Icke. He offers a meta-narrative which explains everything. So it's otherworldly reptilian beings that go back thousands of years. And Alex Jones kind of got into the whole Satanism thing, right? So there's a complete picture of the world is presented, whereas I can't present a complete picture of the world. I don't know what's going on. I'm not on that meta level. I might have a lot of detail in my mind or more than the average person say about the last hundred years of history. But on the whole meta level of, is it planned out? Is it structural forces? Is it psychology? Is it this or that? Well, I think it's a combination of all of them, you know, mm. but like, I would love that to be the case that I could just say it's this, right? It's all because the Anglo-American establishment got together and they were in contact with the spirit world and, the demonic forces instructed them to build this one world globalist empire. I wish I could say that, but obviously I can't. Ah. And if I, I say I wish I could, but it'd probably get very boring very quickly. It And again, I do find a parallel with spirituality here that I interviewed a fellow once who talked about, he was one of the original fellows to go over and study yoga in India in the 60s, okay, and gone into these very deeply philosophical, mystical forms of spirituality and meditation and all the rest. And eventually he dropped it all and became an evangelical Christian. And one of his observations was, this is after like 30 years of practice, that after he became a Christian minister, he was ministering to men behind prison bars. And he said, I couldn't have dreamed of doing that with, with Eastern mysticism. I wouldn't know where to start. And it's true, right? It's much easier to go sit with someone who says Jesus loves you than it is to talk about the philosophical nature of consciousness and how, where thoughts arise from, you know? And that's a, a challenge I've faced in my involvement in Eastern mysticism and philosophy. Too, right? How do you how do you put this in a way that you can actually relate to people and you don't feel like you're completely isolated and actually doing no bloody good as compared to someone who's just saying Jesus loves you, or in the conspiracy context, as compared to an Alex Jones or a David Icke who's bringing millions of people in and telling mm. them the world isn't the way they think it is, and they're doing much better than you or I or a hundred people like us in that regard. But how do you then do that? Have that reach in a way that you don't sacrifice the hopefully erudite nature of what you're doing and I would have to. I think we'll just have to leave that at some point as an open challenge that we can progress upon, Adam. Because yeah, I I think I'm I'm really just coming out of the stage of acknowledging the fullness of the problem and acknowledging that we can't just get rid of these people. We need to replace them with something. They exist for a reason. Right. This is a conundrum I faced about two years ago, where I made a video on YouTube called um, "We Need Another New 9/11 Truth Movement." But how do you go about doing this? Well, I, I had a theory was that we could try and get the more rational proponents within the truth movement and get them to basically create a new movement where you're not worried about quantity. You're more concerned about quality. So you would basically vet information and see where these people are coming from. For example, do you believe the planes were hijacked and what methods are you employing when you talk about these certain subjects. So I want them to go through like the scientific method about their information to see if it's true or false. Early on the truth movement, they were more worried about quantity rather mm. than quality. And I think that's what led to their downfall right off the bat because they just accepted everybody. Because the main antagonist for the 9-11 truth movement is the official narrative. I always pose this question to people who say, well, I'm against the official narrative. Okay, what is the official narrative? And usually I'll always get like a general answer, the government's answer, but that's very vague. Again, I want to be very specific. What is it? So I know what they're alluding to. They're alluding to the 9-11 uh, Commission's final report, but that's not all there is. You also have an FBI pit bomb report. You have the Joint House Inquiry Committee final report. You have a lot of reports that are coming out. So 
I want them to basically acknowledge that, no, not everything in these reports are false. Now, not everything in it is totally true. Most of the information about 9-11 is missing from these reports. However, because they've been browbeaten by people like Alex Jones and Jim Fetzer and Loose Change about no planes and no hijackers, when you don't have any planes and hijackers, you don't need to study the backgrounds of these people. And by default, that means the CIA, the NSA, the Israeli Mossad, the Saudi GID, the Pakistan ISI, all these operations involving pre-intelligence that goes back years, as well as the motivations of these people involved with the hijackings, all of this goes unstudied. So they're basically having very general information, and I'm being very giving there, their limits about 9-11 are replaced with the very fringe aspects of conspiracy. And so they can only talk about limitations when it comes to 9-11. And it's a very limited discussion with these people. Yeah. What One thing I'd say there, Adam, I think you're not wrong that a movement probably is better going for quality over quantity. Like you don't want to reach out to millions of people who just aren't going to bring anything to the party other than mm. disreputability, okay? But I, do, I also think it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to pursue some sort of legal action, then you definitely want a small number of dedicated people and not uh, the masses. And you see that some of the truth movements in Northern Ireland, like around there's a bar, bar called McGurk's that got bombed in the early 70s, and mm. there was state involvement in that, and the family members, it's gone from one generation to the next, pursuing truth on that, trying to get truth out of the British government. And um, that's like really exemplary in how I think you run a truth movement in terms of really challenging the state's narrative, but it's a tiny number of people. None of them are into it because it's an interesting conspiracy theory. They're all into it because their um, their family members were murdered. And you saw that when, when the 9-11 truth movement was at its best, was when family members, those ladies from Jersey, were solidly yes. involved, and that produced yes. the best stuff. But I also do think that, well, what you're saying there, though, is that you don't want to have like an outreach. You don't want to reach a massive audience. And I do question whether that's really a sustainable approach to go to like surely there have been good effects over the past 20 years and particularly on the other side of covid where people think very differently about the state's narratives of wars and economics and terrorism now than they did in the 1990s and probably if you go back to prior to the church committees of the uh, 1970s that's senator frank church not churches of where the investigation into cia malfeasance and, and watergate Probably, I think people back in the 60s were far more trusting of the government again than people post that. So it would be interesting if you could somehow plot the, the population's levels of trust in government. I think they've declined for a substantial portion of the population. And that has come through like massive outreach. So what I would think you would need is someone with the talents of an Alex Jones, with the talents of a David Icke, to tell a good story and to be flamboyant and to, you know, I mean, Alex... You've got to enjoy Alex Jones, right? You've got to enjoy the performances and the gay frogs and all this kind of thing. Uh, now, 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 the gay frogs, I don't even think it's even one of the more horrendous things he said. You know, yeah, obviously, pouring chemicals into the environment might, yeah. might not uh, be good for frogs. Okay, yeah. But, yeah. but you, can't not, you can't not think, okay, like society has a place for the kind of the court jester, if you like, or the nutter who rants about things and it is kind of crazy. Like maybe every society needs its public square jester so you've got to integrate that guy but ensure that he doesn't go too far in that direction like the archetype of the jester maybe is alex jones a jester how well yeah i don't know maybe the conspiracy theorist is his own archetype separate from the jester i don't know we would be a very boring world without people like alex jones mm. i would say yeah what we desperately need uh richard is an alex jones who will speak about alex station for example yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's why I see there's like yeah. a, a marriage of people because, look, not you, not me, not Nelson, no one has the charisma of Alex Jones, right? And there's probably something antithetical about doing quite boring research, no, boring right. through books and documents right. and being a really flamboyant character. Those two qualities are antithetical of each other. So they're, they're intention. So that's what I think. But then people like that are never really restrained by good quality research so that's what i think you need the marriage of you need to to bring the 
the conspiracy theorist inside the tent, if you like. Not that they're necessarily willing to come. So, yeah, square that circle. Anyway, what do you think of the trial and its implications? Well, for those who have not seen the trial, I would implore you to do so. It was incredibly entertaining, so to speak, if you care to look at the sun, knowing that it could melt your irises. Alex Jones basically did himself no favors whatsoever in this trial. He was basically disrupting at times. The judge became very irritated with him a lot of the times, especially during the latter stages of the trial. Doubled down on just about every statement he made, although he did retract and said that he did believe that Sandy Hook was a real uh, event and that children did die, and he threw... Wolfgang Halbig under the bus, which was quite a surprise because I actually thought that maybe, just maybe, he would actually defend Halbig saying, well, maybe he, you know, he was just caught up in it. No, he said that Halbig pressured Alex Jones, pressured the show to propagate these theories, and Alex Jones basically relented. He gave himself an excuse saying that he was going through a very troubling divorce, having benders with alcohol and whatnot. And of course, you know, this is all just basically him trying to say it's not really my fault. Yeah, that that sounds pretty, like you phone Alex Jones up and try and pressure him to get Alex Station on, see how far you get. You know, the idea that he was pressured is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. But at the end, he was uh, held liable on two. Uh, one was a um, oh, it was a civil suit of two million dollars to the parents, but then came the um, punitive damages, which totaled. 48 million. So it was almost a round figure of 50 million at the end. And afterwards, uh, Lenny Posner told Nelson Martins, because Nelson Martins knows him through viral media. And Lenny Posner saw the uh, the result and said to Nelson that um, he's next, but he's going to take much more from Alex Jones than that. Because with Lenny Posner, he was actually physically assaulted by people who follow InfoWars, Alex Jones' show. And he was actually threatened by people like him. Uh, I don't know who specifically went to his house and threatened him, but this will be a much more damaging financially for Alex Jones. It was a, a deplorable, and if I didn't hate Alex Jones more, after the trial, I hated him even much more for what he's done and the lives that he affected and the, the, the extent he went to on viral media regarding these theories. It was disgusting. It was just an awful display of humanity offered by Alex Jones. But at the same time, I was thinking, is he doing this on purpose? Is he trying to live up to the character that he portrays? Now, at the same time, is he doing this for a much more nefarious reason? And it's something that I speculate uh, oftentimes with you, that mm -hmm. he is a an agent, whether willing or unwilling, of the state or the intelligence services. And he has to go through this. Or is he really that degenerate and that ignorant? I have a probably more formed opinion on this after the most recent David Icke podcast I put mm. out. So it, it would be the ultimate irony, wouldn't it, if Alex Jones, after tarnishing all these investigations into state-sponsored terror for years by associating them with nonsense, then his next trick is to bring in or set the precedent for lawsuits against people who are doing genuine investigations. That mm. would be like, yeah, great. But we talk about Wolfgang Halbig and this idea of crisis actors, of the kids from Sandy Hook singing at the Super Bowl. And you shake your head in disbelief because like, well, how does that in any way fit with the world we live in? You know, how could that mm. possibly be a thing? And why does it not occur to these people inside 10 seconds that that's not the case? What I think the answer to that might be is that they're not living in the world we're living in, in some sense, right? So my most recent David Icke podcast, I looked at David Icke being influenced by people who claim to be victims of MKUltra. So there's a lot of people who claim to be victims of MKUltra, tell very extreme stories, and they've got the documents to prove it, and they win compensation cases in court, right up to potentially having microchips put in their head and all sorts. So, so there's a lot of like really far out stuff that's true with MKUltra. But then you have people like Kathy O'Brien, who I would suggest was a major influence on David Icke's thinking. 
in profound ways in in influencing him and in how much deception exists in the world. So, you know, Kathy O'Brien's narrative is she was body and killed. She wrote this famous book, Transformation of America, mm. where she's being chased through the woods by George Bush and Bill Clinton with high-powered rifles, and they're raping her and they're committing acts of violence against like her, they're committing sexual acts against her daughter and all sorts. And that's one of many testimonies like this. Bryce Taylor is another one. And it takes you into a world where the CIA do have these underground bases where they are growing people in labs, in vats, okay? And they're, they're doing all sorts of gene splicing experiments and they've got thousands and thousands of mind-controlled slaves around the country. And then you can think, well, okay, gee, if you make a little paradigm shift in that world, then it is possible they could just bring the people up from the underground bases and have these crisis actors who are under mind control out there pretending they have children or they're being mind controlled to think they have children and then they just get put back in the underground bases again. So you, I think a percentage of the population have gone into conspiracy to the point where they are living in an entirely different world. And that's why things that seem outrageous and unworkable enter the realm of the possible for them that that's a gen that's like the interpretation that allows them to be telling the truth right for some people it might just be a financial scam i don't know but you know what i mean that, that's it made me aware doing this latest podcast just to the extent of that that there is a split at some point between people who are engaged in geopolitical research but think the world has a certain solidity and deception can only go so far like people lie they cheat they seal but they can't necessarily take on entirely false personas for their entire lifetime because at some point you meet an edge, right? You can you can go behind closed doors and talk about the New World Order or Bohemian Grove or whatever, but Bohemian Grove has to be staffed by waiters and waitresses who then hear you doing that. And you can't just dispose of them all at the end of it and they can't all be mind-controlled slaves. So if everyone was being deceptive behind closed doors in high political positions, they would have to meet a point where they meet people who aren't being deceptive. And for that reason, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? That Right. So I, I I think there are limits to how deceptively people can act. But I could be wrong about that. But what, what I see in the conspiratorial mind, the conspiratorial outlook, is that that falls away. That limitation falls away. And then things like Sandy Hook or being crisis actors becomes plausible. It really delves into the psyche of the individual and how, how willing they're willing to desperately believe. Where if they fervently believe that the children of Sandy Hook are alive, and they concentrate just on that specific conspiracy. Well, I guess it would lend to your point that that could become a reality and that would become a permanent fixture in their mind where they actually made themselves believe it. And it's almost like religion in that aspect because when I was delving into the arguments of religion and atheism, I was an, a fervid anti-theist and I dealt with the extremes of religious people. And even though I would say, well, this guy's got to be a troll. No, there were people who actually believed that, for example, Balaam the donkey was talking to his master, as uh, stated in the New Testament, that they actually believed that during the rapture, you will suddenly just float into the sky and be saved. They literally believe this. Yeah, and, and how much more far out is it than to believe the families of Sandy who all live in underground bases and they're crisis actors? If you can go to what? You can go to a talking donkey. Sure. You can go to that. Right, because there's no limit here, all right? Yeah. I mean, even the most extreme beliefs, there is no roof. Because I have a I have a, like a, a duality of an argument within me. Some people are just saying there's no way the guy is trolling me. But at the same time, I'm like, can he really believe that? Because I dealt with people like this before. So when people come to me about, you know, living Sandy Hook kids or CGI planes, I have to give the benefit of the doubt that that person really believes that. Yeah. So I, I think there are people who are trolling or just lying. Right. But I think we tend to overestimate it because I think the harder thing to do is see someone's point of view. And I say overestimate because I meet people and I think there's no way you can take yourself seriously. And then I'm on closer investigation. I come away feeling like, yep, I think you do. I think you believe the thoughts in your head, as incredible as that is. Mm. And, you know, we've had people contact us about Flat Earth recently, Adam, all sorts, right? And yeah, the majority of the day believe it. I think there are, sometimes yes. there are people who are too credulous, right, with, with regard to this, that they 
tend to never see people as being deceptive or lying and always take what they say kind of face value. And you can go too far in that direction. But for the most part, I see people being too willing to draw the sword of saying, hey, you're lying. You know you're lying. You know, people, people actually really can convince themselves of all sorts. Like I said before, it's it's incredulous because the more extreme that they believe in certain things, it's almost like a natural reaction. There's no, there's no way. There's no way that a person, but at the same time, yes, that that person could genuinely believe it. Would I say Alex Jones fits that description? In my personal opinion, no. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Can I prove it? No. I think from my opinion, from like reading him through a psychological eye, I think he's doing this on purpose. Now, as opposed to somebody like Judy Wood, for example, well, I think Mm. she genuinely believes that. That directed energy weapons did indeed melt the towers. Or somebody like uh, Rebecca Roth, who believes that everybody was flown into a hangar, a military hangar, and made to make calls and were suddenly shot by U.S. military officials and their bodies dumped on the planes into the Atlantic Ocean. Do I think she believes it? Yeah, I think she really believes that. So there is a discrepancy between the fringe conspiracy theorists about whether they genuinely believe it or not. I think the majority of them really believe it. I can say maybe one or two, I would dare say that, no, they don't believe it. And the reason why they're doing it is for nefarious reasons. Yeah. So I'm going to lean the other way on Alex Jones, just Ah. looking at him. I think he believes that. I think that, I think I can see the path he's taken to get where he is. And what I think a lot of people don't do is when they make decisions about something, when they might research a topic for a while, but when they've selected, okay, this is the right answer, they never question that again. And they close down all possibilities. And then they've moved to a different world. And that new place they've moved to becomes the foundation for a new investigation where they can move to a more extreme place. This is what I've explored with David Icke, okay, that he makes a series of decisions that move him progressively, step by step, further away from the average person until it's reptilians. And in some ways, if I was to approach the David Icke series from any other angle than he believes it, it would be a really boring series. So just, well, David's lying for money, that's it. Okay, we can all go home now. So the challenge is to explain, like, how does he come to believe these outrageous things? And I, I think it's the same of Alex Jones. I think that he's gotten very tied up. You know, I think he starts with Gary Allen and the Nunder, call it conspiracy, John Birch mm. literature about a global mm. communist takeover. And he finds a lot of stuff in that that's true or plausible or whatever. Uh, it Or it describes trends you see going on before you. And I think he just takes step after step after step until he becomes completely convinced of the new world order paradigm. And then obviously school shootings become entirely plausible within that. And who knows, maybe even crisis actors in them. Uh, that's a feasible point, by the way. I like that. Maybe it's because I have such a prejudice against Alec Jones that I want him to be an agent so that everybody can know he's a fraud. I want to say that there was a uh, case, oh, it was against his wife, about either custody or something, I think was, where his lawyer basically said and admitted in court that InfoWars was nothing more than an entertainment show, an entertainment channel, and that nothing he says is remotely factual. And that's what led me to believe what I, what I just said, that he's just doing this for show. Now, does that automatically mean that he doesn't believe that the Sandy Hook kids are alive? No. You know, you very well could be right that he he does really believe. No, I think that if I recall rightly, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I think the lawyer said it was like a performance. And I've heard yes, people say this right, right. That, when he right. went on yes. the BBC with Andrew, yes. what's his name? Andrew Neal. And uh, he did this whole thing. He was ranting and ranting about gun control. Maybe it was after Sandy Hook. And Andrew Neal said, as soon as the cameras stopped, that behavior stopped. And it's very caricatured. And I think that's true. I think the kind of slamming his fist behavior is a character that the man Alex Jones plays. I don't think he's like really goes around in his day-to-day life acting like this totally over-the-top outrageous character. I think he's he mm. recognizes that to a degree. I think in his own mind, he believes the information he's spouting. But, the, yeah, the character thing, thats I think that's a contrivance, and he's kind of aware of that. He's kind of aware that it's a performance. That's why, that's why he came up in Family Court, because he didn't 
didn't want the judge to think he was a, an absolute lunatic when he was applying for custody. No, correct. But it goes back, you know what, it, this leads right back into the point that you made previously, which I, I thought was very sound, that he is telling a story, but he's also telling it in a very gregarious way, whereas opposed to someone like myself, where I'm just giving 9-11 information in a very bland voice. So he's he's giving you a double show. He's giving you disinformation, but he's doing it in a way, and in a way it sounds appeasing. Okay, well, I could ask about what, oh, yeah, I will just ask, okay, final thing. What are the implications, do you think, of this trial then? So, so what I understand is it might not be anything like $46 million that actually comes out of Alex Jones. Alex Jones making all sorts of, all sorts of claims about the financial viability of InfoWars and all the rest. And uh, there are limits to how much compensation might actually be paid. Alex Jones probably has indemnity insurance, so he might never pay any of it himself. Other people in the that arena might find their um, payments going up. But we're going into a world... Well, I, I don't know. Is this a big break in like a redefining of freedom of speech in the United States? Or is it just business as usual that you've always been able to be sued for, for libel if you affect someone's life and it will have really no effect on the wider media? Or are we seeing as the Associated Press put a, I don't know, I think it might have been a tweet out straight away saying, Alex Jones is sued for spreading malicious lies about Sandy Hook, but people can still deny the Holocaust and vaccines online, implying that, well, why should they be able to? Why can't we go after these people now? So I guess, you know, your guess is as good as mine in this, Adam, but it's, uh, we, what what does this set a precedent for for the future? Will, will you be getting sued in court in a few years' time? Yeah, this this is the dangerous precedent, right? Because if it's Alex Jones, who's next? Look, after if all these civil suits are said and done, I still think he'll still be on the air. I still think that he will garner millions of listeners. It might actually put him even in a more popular light because yep. of the attention that he's getting. Also, now that you're talking about a much darker effect, what will this do to anyone that questions the establishment with a state point of view? Exactly right. This is why I have such a vitriol for Alex Jones is because, yeah, there are decent researchers out there, reputable researchers for 9-11. I can name very few, but I can name Paul Thompson, John Gold, Ryan Dawson, Nelson Martins, Ray Nolowiski, Robbie Martin, Abby Martin. I can name them. But what Alex Jones does is this. When he propagates these theories and he questions the narrative of the state government, which is rightfully to do so, which is what we're doing. But when you propagate these fringe, outrageous theories, what he does is that he, by default, gravitates us into his group because we dared question the narrative. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, a fringe conspiracy. I would like to think I'm not, but I don't posit fringe conspiracy theories and do it in a way that, you know, he's very brute in the way he does it. I like to bring information and share information with an audience. But because he questions the narrative and because it's the official narrative for him, all of a sudden, anyone who dares question that narrative is suddenly a fringe conspiracy theorist. And I think this is the ultimate dangerous point is that, yeah, Alex Jones, I may hate him, but I support his right to speak it. And that pained me to say it, but, but that is the essence of free speech mm. to protect unpopular speech. Well, I think there's a genuine gray area here, right? Because you can't shout fire in a crowded theater oh, and right, you can't right, like, exactly. right. you can't tell someone, that guy over there has got a gun and he's off to shoot up a school because then if, if that person you told goes and kills the guy, then sure. he's kind of acted in preemptive self-defense, right? Or preemptive defense of those children. And if you just lied about that, you've got someone killed. So, so speech that initiates violence isn't free. And you could say that, and I don't think Alex Jones is actually the worst person for this. I just think he had the biggest reach in terms, because he was always on the fence about the Sandy Hook kids. And it, I, I like, agree. I agree with if you. If you tell people that those people there are CIA plants and they're faking it about having their kids killed, right, then you have, in a sense, drawn a target on their backs. Surely it, it seems like the people more to blame are the people who actually go out and target 
and I think it's quite a broad phenomenon because I just happened to be in a Facebook group on something completely unrelated to all of this uh, with somebody who had a relative who was shot in one of some one of those incidents in the US that periodically happened. And he came in the group and goes, oh, my God, I'm getting messages, like private messages of people accusing me of being like a crisis actor for the CIA because he'd given an interview on it. And they thought, well, this is, this is the world we live in now. There's like a substantial number of people have kind of gone nuts. They've kind of shifted into this worldview. I do think there's some gray here. I don't necessarily think it is in principle bad. Obviously, given the world we live in, which is one of ever-increasing state censorship, it is. It's going to be used for nefarious purposes. Sure, because they'll just go right back to the default position of Alex Jones. You see how dangerous Alex Jones is? Uh, we need to stop this and curb this. Now, I'm already seeing this from people of the left of on viral media, where they're basically demeaning Alex Jones, saying, hey, we need to implement rules and regulations about certain speech. Yeah. And in the back of my head, I'm saying, see, this is exactly the real danger of all of this. And this is the reason why I, I despise Alex Jones is because he should know better because of the platform he has and the dangers and the falsehoods that he espouses affects all of us, not him, because in the trial, it was all about him and that he didn't care about anybody else. But in the end, it's about all of us, Richard, me and you, you know, and everybody else. Now, we, we question the narrative about certain histories involving government uh, malfeasance or even complicity in crimes, but we're not I irrational or irresponsible. Mm. Well, where, where are you going to draw that line, right? Because, okay, let's say, for example, let's say people started harassing Neil Armstrong. And people have harassed, like, I think Buzz Aldrin punched a guy once who asked him oh, about the moon. Right. Right? Yes, so that's right. At the moment, that's right. I think the propensity of moon landing conspiracies online does not amount to a level where it negatively impacts the astronauts who, quote unquote, went there. So there's no grounds for a lawsuit against people making moon landing documentaries because it's not detrimental to the lives of those astronauts. Okay, but let's say it just became a big thing. Not very likely in today's world. It's not something that's on people's minds, but... Well, there's supposed to be another moon mission, right? So let's say another moon mission happens and there's another documentary made about the lunar landing saying they're faked, including the new one, and the astronauts start to get really seriously harassed. Could you see people who make moon landing documentaries being locked up? Now, I would consider moon landing documentaries to be a fairly innocuous activity. I'm a bit on the fence about it myself. I'm not convinced that they went to the moon. I think on balance they probably did, but I find the documentary certainly very interesting when you've got the photographers sure. there saying, oh, no way, that, that light's all wrong. And, you know, looking at just how unlikely it is and how we've never been outside of 400 miles of the Earth's uh, orbit ever since. You know, it's just so I find it interesting. Right. And I think it would be a very sinister world where people making those documentaries could potentially face million dollar lawsuits. And by contrast, you have a group like the Westboro Baptist Church who could go around picketing the funerals of dead soldiers uh. intentionally to cause as much emotional distress as possible. And what do they get? They get police protection. They're not libelous because, well, I guess you can't prove that the soldier isn't going to hell. So there's nothing you can say about that. It's not a, demonst right. <laughs> it's not a demonstrably false claim. So right. they get police protection. It doesn't seem like those two things should exist together. Like that some people can be sued for putting out material that causes emotional distress whilst other people get police protection whilst they cause emotional distress. It's not a fair world, hmm. is it? Contradiction. <laughs> right. And it, it, the gray area does gravitate toward what is, what is considered dangerous from say moderate. And that depends on the person interpreting it. Right. So if it's up to a judge or if it's up to the house or the Senate, well, they could just basically say, well, we think cer certain so-and-so is dangerous, but they got to have at least the backing of the people behind it. Uh, is there a lot of people that think Alex Jones is dangerous? Absolutely. But who's to say that the next person may not have the global reach like Alex Jones does is not next? Because if they can get to him, and they could suppress his speech. Oh, we knocked down a big guy. Well, we can knock down everybody else along with it. 
Yeah, and it could be someone you don't even hear about it, right? Because like when Alex Jones is going being booted off YouTube, so was Alison Weir, the yes, yes, anti-Zionist activist. Yes. And who even knew about that? Uh, I didn't know until much later, months later. Yeah, I didn't exactly. know. But yeah, this this actually, what was it about three or four years ago, Richard, where we saw like this um, eviction of like conservative yeah. speech from YouTube. Now, I, I'm not one for, you know, the right wing, but the left wing was applauding it. That was the horrifying aspect because they're not even realizing that they too, that, that they're not safe. They're next and they just don't realize it. So I think the dangerous precedent of banning speech, like you said, I agree, it is a gray area, but where is the line drawn regarding safe speech and dangerous speech? It's not defined. Yes, well, when you find yourself up in court, Adam, you know it's gone too far. Uh, they won't get much out of me, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Adam. We'll uh, we'll conclude there, and uh, yeah, let's maybe speak again next week. Oh, thank you very much, Rich. I'll see you again.